Think it's only astronauts and astrophysicists who are helping shape the future of human spaceflight? Well, think again. Welcome to Science Island. I'm your host, Leah Hitchings, along with Grant Burningham. And today we're talking to Ariel Waldman, who advises NASA with the goal of creating game-changing light bulb moments in the field of space exploration. Space exploration isn't exactly something that's getting exponentially better. It's kind of something where we're using existing technology until a breakthrough happens and then it really changes the game. You're listening to KACRLP 96.1 FM. Coming up, we'll talk about the best breakthroughs Ariel's seen at Science Hack Day, a program she directs that recently spread to its 29th country, here on Science Island. So Grant, I know that you've read a sci-fi book or two in your day or watched a movie or two. I I may have, yeah. (laughs) What was the technology or concept that you've seen in a sci-fi movie or book having to do with space that you were like, that would be so awesome if it really existed in real life? I'm going to give you a really nerdy answer. Uh, Obviously, the Starship Enterprise, the warp drive, but there's mm-hmm. all these other things you needed at the same time to make the warp drive work. Like you needed a shield in order to be able to go that fast and not just like hit a particle, which would tear your ship apart. Anyway, the, it got endlessly nerdy and complicated. That's great. It's all about the details, right? <laughs> Definitely. Well, there's, there's actually this council that is part of NASA whose job is to look to totally crazy, out-of-the-box ideas, many of them actually inspired by sci-fi concepts, to get to the next level in spaceflight. So it's called the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program, and it's made up of people who are just so inspired by sci-fi concepts or the things that they've read about or even just dreamed about, and they are kind of tasking themselves with, you know, how can they really actually make that happen for our actual space missions? So what is the kind of stuff that they're working on? So a lot of it has to do with um, the mechanics of spaceflight, and they're trying to really push themselves to go beyond the sort of current generation of space travel. Um, The guest that we're going to be talking to later in the show, her name is Ariel Waldman. She is a participant in the External Council for NIAC. That's the acronym version of the um, NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program. And what's really cool about their part of the program is that they aren't just made up of what we kind of think of as the classic astronaut slash uh, rocket scientist. They also have people from different backgrounds as diverse as um, designers, artists, marketing people, uh, sci-fi authors, um, just to come up with inspiration. So what I really liked about that was that it could mean that like people like us could even have something to contribute. Yeah, I I have always wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, 
I don't think it's going to happen. Each passing year and each eyeglass prescription, which gets worse, it seems less <laughs> likely to happen. Uh, so do you think we will live to see someone on Mars? That's something that I actually um, will be talking to Ariel about. Um, I would have said yes. Ariel perhaps feels otherwise. Do you <laughs> oh, ouch. About, I know. But how about you? Do you think it's it's something – well, first of all, do you think it's something that's, like, worthy of investing huge amounts of um, capital and energy into? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The example I always use when I get that argument from people that's like, we should be focusing on Earth – this is really focusing on Earth, in my opinion. Like, we didn't know anything about global warming until we looked at Venus. We didn't know anything about the ozone layer until we started to send probes to Mars. Like, this is just common sense. We we need to understand where we are, and we aren't going to do that until we really start exploring and putting putting our flag out there. Yeah. Let's conquer the universe. <laughs> You're on board? <laughs> Let's do this. Yeah. Maybe they'll they'll need an astronaut with LASIK and <laughs> I'm in. Yeah, they could be I mean, it's it's not too much of a stretch. They could need some idea that's buried in the brain of you or some other person who maybe isn't the classic um example of um a rocket scientist or an astronaut or what have you um and ariel waldman is actually one of those people who doesn't come from a uh, purely scientific background she has um, most of her education in the art field as a designer um so there's hope there's hope grant you too could somehow be involved Let's talk more about this with today's guest. Ariel Waldman is a visionary and expert in the field of human spaceflight, advising the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program. She's also the Global Director for Science Hack Day. Ariel, welcome to Science Island. Thanks so much for having me. So, Ariel, the scope of what you're working on um, in the field of space exploration and human spaceflight is pretty incredible. But maybe you can start by telling us about what the NIAC, the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program, does. Yeah, so the uh, NIAC program, uh, as you mentioned, NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts, is kind of the only program at NASA that funds the more visionary, futuristic, out there um, almost science fiction-like concepts that could go on to transform future space missions. So things like using comets as propulsion systems or, um, you know, figuring out how we can keep uh, rovers powered uh, throughout the day on the moon without having to shut them down. Um, you know, there's different concepts, even, you know, uh, human hibernation on the way to Mars. These are things that seem kind of out there or far-reaching today, but people can do real credible research on them to figure out if they're actually viable or not. It sounds like it's sort of a council setup. Do you all sort of collaborate with one another and bounce ideas off each other? So uh, for NIAC, NIAC funds uh, people uh, both inside and outside of NASA who have these visionary concepts and want to explore them further. So anyone can apply to NIAC, which is really cool. The NIAC program itself that uh, exists at NASA um, is, uh, consists of just a few people, but there's also, <coughs> excuse me, an external council. Um, and the external council is a group of people who 
um, really represent different areas and sort of help steer the program um, in a direction that keeps it sort of balancing or straddling, if you will, that sort of science fiction and science uh, level. So a lot of the external counsel are science fiction authors or physicists or people um, who work on really interesting different areas. And, and I've been uh, honored to be part of this council. And uh, for me, what I try and focus on with the council is trying to get people outside of the space exploration industry um, to contribute their existing skills and research towards space mission context. So I'm trying to get biologists, neuroscientists, um, geophysicists, people from all different sorts of backgrounds to contribute their knowledge towards space exploration. An interesting way to approach it. I I feel like most people, when they think about this field, they think about it as sort of um, an elite space, something you have to go to years and years of school for and be a specific type of scientist. But this sounds like something completely different from that. Yeah, this is something where it's really just about the ideas. So there are a lot of things uh, that could make space exploration better. And space exploration typically throughout the years has been something that's been improved through breakthroughs. So space exploration isn't exactly something that's getting exponentially better. It's kind of something where we're using existing technology until a breakthrough happens and then it really changes the game. So NIAC is really all about um, having those game-changing sort of technologies um, and getting them infused into NASA early on, even if they might be 10, 20, 30 years away from actually being realized. Um, NIAC is really great about funding ideas that otherwise wouldn't get any funding because they're so futuristic. Got it. And the um, other program that you actually are the global director of, Science Hack Day, it sounds like sort of has a similar democratic approach to science. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Science Hack Day is a weekend event that gets scientists, designers, developers, uh, people from all different backgrounds, lawyers, lawyers, writers, roboticists, everyone, uh, together in the same physical space to see what they can rapidly prototype with science in 24 consecutive hours. So the mission of Science Hack Day is really just about people getting excited and making things with science, but they don't need to have any experience in science or hacking or have any specific skill set. It's really just about prototyping ideas to whatever fidelity level you can over a weekend with a lot of people from completely different disciplines. Um, and so Science Hack Day uh, is an event that happens here in San Francisco um, every year, and it also happens around the world. Uh, the event is now in 20, is in 29 countries around the world. Uh, we just added Finland to make our 29th country. And anyone oh, can great. organize a science hack day. Yeah. And so it's great to have one in the Bay Area. We just had our eighth annual one uh, in San Francisco in October, and we'll be doing the ninth annual one uh, sometime next year. And it's just a lot of fun. Very cool. And have there been certain projects or prototypes that really left an impression on you that have come out of those events? There have been so many. Uh, people really create, you know, wacky things. They create serious things. Uh, there have been all sorts of, of projects that I like, but one project in particular I often tell people about because to me it really uh, encapsulates what I often see at the event is uh, we had a guy who wanted to create a device that would detect when he needed to shave. Uh, so it was called a, a beard detector. Um, mm-hmm. And it was completely silly, uh, but but fun. And so he created this device using like a USB microscope. 
um, and wrote some basic computer vision code. And he got this really gross image of all the stubble on his face. Um, and the device would tell him when he needed to shave. Uh, completely ridiculous, but uh, a particle physicist was in the audience and saw this and thought it was a genius way for detecting cosmic rays in a cloud chamber um, and went on to create an entirely uh, new research program around detecting cosmic rays in cloud chambers using the original uh, code and open computer vision library someone had used to detect whether or not they needed to shave. So that's really what Science Hack Day is all about, is kind of just making things and not even knowing where they're going, but they might actually go on to influence science in a really profound way. You know, you mentioned that people from all sorts of different backgrounds and and fields, they come together for these um, events. Is there a certain kind of personality trait that you've noticed these folks have in common that are coming up with these creative ideas? You know, I... If I was being honest, the personality trait most people have in common is being shy. <laughs> it's oh, uh, that most people, <laughs> most people go into science hack day going like, I've never done a hackathon before. I don't have hacker skills or I'm a scientist, but I don't really know how I can relate my work to anyone else or how I can communicate it. You know, I, I, we get a lot of people that before they come to science hack day, they're, they're shy and introverted, which I can actually very much relate to. Um, but, but they all go through it and, and come out the other side just with amazing connections, amazing ideas, and it really um, impacting their work in ways that they otherwise wouldn't have known had they not been through the experience. So I think a lot of people come into it not knowing what's going to happen and not being really sure of themselves of like what they can contribute and coming out the other side just with amazing friends and ideas and and really sparks for future collaborations. That's really great, and it sounds like a great way to sort of build community within um, the fields of science. When it comes to the future of these scientific fields and, of course, the future of human spaceflight, which is something that you have supported in your NIAC work, um, what do you think is going to really shape our our perceptions of human spaceflight and space exploration for the next 50 to 100 years. Yeah, so the the work that I've done on the future of human spaceflight actually hasn't been through NIAC, but it's been through the National Academy of Sciences. And so I was on a committee, uh, a congressionally requested uh, committee on the future of human spaceflight. Um, and so this was uh, Congress asking uh, the National Academy of Sciences to produce a report on why do we even do human spaceflight um, and how can it be sustainable over the next several decades out to the 2050s or so? Um, and so I met with a, a committee of uh, people who were, um, you know, scientists, economists, uh, particle physicists, uh, astronauts, you know, people from a lot of different backgrounds came together. And we uh, did a two-year study on how to make a sustainable human spaceflight program and sort of explore the rationale for why we even go in the first place. And it was really an amazing, amazing experience. Um, but, you know, it, it was something where uh, it was kind of the first time that the National Academies had been tasked with exploring the why, uh, not just, you know, how, but why do we explore? It was it was really um, in, incredible. And, and I think a lot of the stuff that came out of the report were things about how there are pragmatic rationales. So, uh, return on investment and things of that nature. But there were also 
um, sort of uh, more uh, aspirational rationales, things that were more about shared human destiny and uh, survival of the human species. And so we collectively found in the report um, that it was really the combination of the pragmatic and aspirational uh, rationales that really argued for a continuation of human spaceflight. Would you say, having been a part of that process, that you're optimistic about the future of space exploration, having done the report? Uh, I am, and I'm not. And and I'll clarify what I mean by that. So before going into this this, uh, committee and this report, I thought um, personally that uh, going to Mars was difficult. Sending humans to Mars was difficult, but, you know, we've gone to the moon. And so going to Mars is just like, you know, it's a harder step, but it's just a step above going to the moon. Definitely after going through this entire process and and meeting with experts and and producing this report, I now know that people wildly underestimate just how difficult it is to send humans to land on the surface of Mars. It is extremely difficult. It involves technologies that have still to this day not been developed yet. It's not Mm -hmm. to say that they can't be developed, but they haven't been developed. Um, And it involves uh, essentially really not only the technologies to be developed and perfected, but also uh, a billion, hundreds of billions of dollars over many years, and also political will and international cooperation. All of those things have to come together at the same time to even attempt it. Um, and then, and then, yeah, there's just the logistics of actually, you know, landing humans there, sustaining them there, and getting them back safely home. Um, and so it's something that the more I learned about it, the more I really appreciated just how difficult it is um, and just how not guaranteed it is to happen in our lifetimes. And so if it does happen in my lifetime, I am going to be incredibly grateful and overwhelmed because I know how much it's not guaranteed to happen even while I'm alive. So, um, for those of us who've seen movies about going to Mars or other places, what you're saying is it's a lot harder than they make it seem. Yes, it's extremely, extremely difficult. I, I, I really used to think that it was hard, but that we had it in, in the bag more or less and we just needed to get going. But but it's not it's really not that it is extremely difficult. There is nothing guaranteeing it will happen in the next you know couple of decades uh, or even a few decades. Um, which is not to say it's impossible or that it's not going to happen. But I know how much of an achievement it will be if we do accomplish it within our lifetimes. And is there um, you know for future goals? Is there something that? you are excited about um, something that you think is more doable and would uh, really benefit humanity? Um, I certainly think there are steps along the way that are going to be really exciting. Um, One, I think, is that, you know, sending a human to the orbit of Mars is not as difficult as landing them there and and sustaining them there. So I do think that getting humans to the orbit of Mars is something I feel is, is a lot more likely will happen in our lifetimes. Um, and so actually, you know, while it, you don't have the excitement of, of boots on Mars, you have the excitement of humans being able to actually look out the window and see Mars from orbit, which I think will be incredible um, and certainly excite people about the, the next step, which would be actually putting humans on the surface of Mars.
And uh, a reminder, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to KACRLP 96.1 FM. This is Science Island. I'm Leah Hitchings. Uh, I'm talking to Ariel Waldman today. She's a visionary in the field of space exploration and is also the global director of Science Hack Day. Um, and Ariel, you are also an author. You've written a book, What's It Like in Space? Stories from Astronauts. Were there stories that you came across in the course of that research that surprised even you, being uh, fairly expert in this field? Yeah, well, this was sort of the thing. is I, I began doing a lot more work in, in space exploration and in human spaceflight, and I would be having unique opportunities to sort of have coffee with astronauts and sort of talk to them about kind of the more silly or funny stories that they had about their time in outer space. And uh, I decided I, that I should put a book together of all these sort of funny, amusing stories. And, and a lot of the stories that struck me were just the ones where they were just about complete awkwardness. So so one that I love is that, you know, astronauts were uh, that were on the early space shuttle missions were going to space and experiencing these like terrible headaches and, and they were really strong and, and difficult. And, and so a lot of time and money and, and research was spent trying to figure out why are astronauts experiencing these headaches when they go into outer space? Is there something we don't understand about, about space that's affecting them? Um, and so all this time and money was spent. And what they ended up discovering was that the coffee they were sending astronauts up to space with was freeze-dried. So it was pretty much being decaffeinated. And the uh, mm. the headaches they were experiencing were caffeine withdrawal headaches. Yeah, which is a lot to go through in addition to the stress <laughs> <Yeah>. of <laughs> executing yeah, on a so, mission. Yeah, and so it's just like funny stories like that where, you know, a lot of times people think, Space exploration is very, you know, exotic or, or completely different. Um, but there were a lot of stories just about things that were just funny or amusing that you wouldn't know um, about going into space unless you had been there. And so I tried to capture a lot of those stories in this book. Mm-hmm. That's great. And and I feel like a lot of us are curious about what it's like. Um, would you go into space if presented with the opportunity to do so? Really, you know, I'm really unsure about it because it's something where it, <laughs> in a lot of the stories I, I heard from astronauts and that I put into the book, you know, a lot of them could be qualified as sort of coming off across like uh, being camping trips from hell. You know? <laughs> and I'm not a camper, so I'm not sure if I'm the best person uh, to go to, to space um, just because, yeah, it just seems like a lot of, um, you know, awkward situations and things where you're having to do a lot with very little um, and uh, adding in the factor of, you know, uh, getting sick and not feeling great. Um, and then the health risks that you go through, which are quite significant, where um, your vision can be changed permanently um, mm-hmm. or you experience, you know, um, bone and muscle loss, some of which you get back, but some of which you don't. Um, so, you know, you, you go through quite a lot. And so I think it's something where uh, a lot of people don't necessarily weigh all of the uh, risks and uh, things that you go through in order to go to space. And um, so I'm really I'm not I'm not so sure for myself. <laughs> Maybe a suborbital flight where I can you know just go up and see the edge of the Earth for a few minutes and then come back down. Maybe maybe that would be better for me. <laughs> 
Yeah, and and when it comes to say private um, space flight, which I think um, all of us have been tracking more and more recently, um, it's becoming it's really perceived as more of a common concept now. Is that something that um, you think is going to aid space exploration? Definitely. I think, um, you know, it's really about the partnership between government and commercial that's going to really make a, a winning sort of uh, future for space exploration. Uh, actually, in the 1958 Authorization Act for NASA, it says in the act that NASA has to support commercial activities. That's part of NASA's charter. Um, so it's not so much a, a competition so much as it is a collaboration. Um, and it's really exciting to see it unfold and sort of see how both government and commercial are adapting to figuring out where they can be most beneficial um, and where they can add the most value. So um, I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited to be living in a time where commercial um, companies and space exploration are actually being taken seriously. So there's been a number of companies over the last uh, several years and even decades um, with varying degrees of success. Um, but I think we're really living in an age where um, things have become democratized enough where uh, companies actually have a, a shot at really um, being a big player in space exploration just as much as the government agencies do. So it's a really exciting time to be alive. Yeah, and, and something that I think our listeners uh, will be really excited about as well is something that you put together called spacehack.org. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how anybody can participate? Yeah, so spacehack.org is a directory of ways for anyone to participate in space exploration, uh, be it with or without a formal science background. So these are things you can do like discovering new galaxies, uh, building the next generation of Mars rovers, um, a lot of different projects uh, to get involved in where you can actually be um, contributing to the furthering of space exploration in a meaningful way. So uh, spacehack.org is not really um, a place to go, go get an education so much as it's a place to go make real contributions to the field of space exploration. Um, so it's been really exciting to see it, it grow over the years and people being able to contribute to space in so many different ways. Um, so it's really a great jumping board if you want to do more stuff in space, but you don't really know where to start. Um, spacehack.org is great for that. Is it something that, you know, if you just have a sort of standard telescope at home that you could jump into? You mentioned looking for other solar systems. How do people approach that when they're involved with SpaceHack? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of different things. So some, uh, for instance, right now there's some competitions that are uh, involving like biomedical research or life support sensors. Um, but if you've got a telescope, you know, there's also projects where you can help by measuring light pollution or um, uh, mapping out stars. Um, there's a lot of different projects where, you know, sort of just going into your own backyard, you can be doing things. There's also projects where you can be hunting for new comets. Um, all sorts of things. So it really just depends on what your personal interest is in and where you want to start um, because there's a lot of different avenues uh, to be getting started in. So if our listeners are interested in learning more about your projects, uh, where should they go? Uh, the easiest place is probably arielwaldman.com, which is A-R-I-E-L-W-A-L-D-M-A-N.com. Uh, that is sort of my portfolio for all of the projects that I talked 
about uh, today, and you can find the links to all of them all in that place. Well, Ariel, thanks so much for joining me today. We all look forward to seeing and hearing more about your projects regarding space exploration and otherwise in the future. Thanks so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks again so much for having me. So that's it for today's show. We will see you here next week for another installment of Science Island. Follow us on Twitter at Sci Island. I'm Leah Hitchings. Thank you so much to my guest, Ariel Waldman, and to my co-host, Grant Burningham. Uh, you've been listening to KACRLP 96.1 FM. We'll see you next week. <laughs>